0: Showtime. Hi folks, it's Brent Holland from Night Fright. Tonight we bring it for the memory of Martin Luther King. Strap in and hang on. Here we go.
1: There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. Now your host, Brent Holland.
0: And welcome to Night Fright, one and all. On the phone live, we have author Stuart Wexler, and he's got a new book out. Last week we had Larry Hancock on, who's the co-author, and the book is called Bringing Armageddon, the five-year effort to kill Dr. Martin Luther King jr i'd like to welcome Stewart to the show for the very first time how you doing Stuart? i'm doing fine how are you very very well thank you thanks for joining us tonight
2: um not a problem i'm happy to describe things i do want to clarify one thing though the, yes sir the book is pending publication we hope to maybe in the fall um hope we have it on available for everyday people um right now we're sort of fleshing out the final editions and working on it from there
0: a work in progress as they say
2: um, for the most part, yes.
0: Okay. Stuart, I was wondering if you could help us out and start us off and tell us two things. One is the thesis of the book, and the second one I was wondering if you could walk the audience through what happened on that fateful day, April 4, 1968.
2: Um, okay. The essential thesis of the book, and I, I think one thing I want to make clear is we don't pretend that we, we have the absolute answer. Um, a lot of people like uh, know exactly what happened.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What we do want to direct people's attention to is a growing body of evidence, evidence that was there that hasn't been, uh, you know, sort of mm. uh, mined uh, to suggest that the group that I think everybody would have thought on April 4th, many people did think on April 4th, was behind King assassination, may well have been behind the King assassination. And that would be white supremacists and specifically um, groups in the network of what we call the Christian Identity Movement, uh, specifically the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and the National States Rights Party, uh, all of whom had this ideology that Killing King would not only avenge what they saw as injustices against the South, but would bring about... Mm-hmm basically a religious Armageddon. They have a different viewpoint on eschatology and Christian eschatology than mainstream Christianity. And so we believe that they conspired with James Earl Ray. Uh, we're not 100% certain as to what Ray in fact did, but we do believe he was a witting member of a conspiracy to kill Martin Luther King, probably. Okay. Again, I emphasize everything with probably. Okay. Um, in terms of April fourth, um, what happens is is King uh gets a room at the Lorraine Motel. Um, his entourage has rooms there. He goes into he goes into the room with Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who was a key member of the civil rights uh contingent at the time. And King is in Memphis in some ways, to rectify a problem would have proved that nonviolence was still a a viable political maneuver in the 1960s. But King had sort of redirected his focus not just to issues involving African American civil rights, but to issues of broader social justice. And he was actually in Memphis for a for what amounted to a very large union strike. Mm-hmm. And he was going to speak there. And one of his, just a, not too long before this trip, one of his speeches and one of his sort of marches broke out into violence that he wanted to sort of establish nonviolence as a tactic once again, because um, he, he was hoping to do the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which he didn't live to see, which would have been a, a major march, literally almost like a city that was developed in Washington, D.C. after King's death to highlight the plight of the underprivileged. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm digressing a lot just to give some background. King's uh, uh, chauffeur basically comes, he, King is told he's going to go, basically, I believe, eat um, at the residence of another person who's not directly in the entourage but who's sort of Sort of sponsoring King there, for lack of a better term, Reverend, mm-hmm. uh, Billy Kyle's King comes out. His chauffeur tells him he needs to get a jacket. King goes back in, comes back out, and very shortly afterwards, a shot rings out. King is killed, um, and that's that's sort of what happens at the in the actual shooting. Not too long after, people point in the general direction of uh, rooming house that is a few hundred yards away, um, across from the Lorraine motel where King was staying. Um, now, again, it's in a general direction. Some people think shot might've come from some bushes there. Some people thought it came from a room in the rooming house. Somebody comes out of the bathroom in that rooming house, uh, covers his face, flees the scene. Um, He's eventually going to be identified, but not directly. This is important for the people who argue that it wasn't James Earl Ray. Not directly by sight as James Earl Ray, but as sort of indirectly as James Earl Ray. Mm-hmm. James Earl Ray, um, it, it, well, he wasn't. I should I should change that. Identified as the occupant of one of the rooms in the rooming house, who was under an identity. Um, so, a false identity.
0: He was never just just to clarify, he was never identified as the shooter.
2: Uh, well no one directly saw him do it because the general belief is is that a shot was fired from the bathroom of the rooming house and to give you an understanding, a rooming house is mm-hmm. basically for the kids who are listening, it's it's like if somebody had a really big house and rented each of the rooms out to somebody. Now everybody's going to share the living room, everybody's going to share the bathrooms. Um, the official version is is that shots were fired from that bathroom, presumably by James Earl Ray. And uh, there were some signs of this. One of the things is that the, the window appeared to be jammed out. Um, and again, the person somebody was occupying that room for at least a fairly long period of time because uh, some of the witnesses were complaining about it um, and fled. And then where you really get to James Earl Ray is within you know you know an hour or so of the the crime they find even earlier than that somebody drops what amounts to a package a blanket full of material um, outside an amusement called canopy amusement a place that deals with amusement store stuff um, anyway the the owner comes out and in that amongst the things in that package are a rifle, the fingerprints of which will be eventually matched to James Earl Ray, but the, uh, the gun and the bullet, which I can talk more about, is never firmly identified. There's all kinds of confusion on that. There's a radio that they're able to trace to James Earl Ray's prison radio. James Earl Ray is a, is a con man, uh, involved in sort of petty crimes, things like robberies. And he had escaped from prison um, in the previous year, in 1967,
0: um, in April of 67. So, so he was out um, of jail on the lam. He wasn't out. Uh, yeah, he
2: had been on the lam, and as we'll get to discuss yeah. probably before the, the show is on, he had, in fact, gone to Canada almost not too long after he escaped, and he eventually is going to flee to Canada from Atlanta after the assassination. Mm-hmm. They They trace a number of items. Beer cans have his fingerprints on them. Uh, they they eventually will find i uh, get a a sort of a witness ID to show that he had purchased that particular rifle when they traced the rifle to a particular gun shop. So a lot of the things in that package lead to James Earl Ray and James Earl Ray under an alias had had a room in that rooming house. Um, at some point, I could go into what Ray's at least. Defense or account of it is, but what ultimately happens is, is that Ray then flees in a white Mustang to Atlanta. Uh, not too long after that, he either gets, he goes via, at least to his claim, we can't 100% verify this. He leaves the Mustang, goes back to a rooming house he had been renting in Atlanta before the shooting, then, uh, takes the bus up through, I believe it's Detroit, on through to Toronto. Um, And and then then he flees out of Toronto, out of Canada He goes to Europe and he's eventually caught in England And then he's taken back to the United States
0: You're listening
1: to Night Fright Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio The time is now
0: And now your host, Brent Holland so just to clarify, Martin Luther King's in Memphis at that time in April 4, 1968, because he's going to be taking part in a demonstration of...
2: Yes, the sanitation worker sanitation strike. Sanitation
0: worker strike. Okay. And he's staying at the Lorraine Motel. He's staying on the second floor. Outside the second floor of the motel, there's a, a gallery. He steps out onto the gallery in the evening around 6 o'clock. Correct. And a shot rings out that everybody presumes has come from across the street, Now, here's where there's uh, some unclarification from the official story. Many people think it came from the rooming house that's directly across the street, particularly an open window that leads into a bathroom. It was one single shot. Below the bathroom, in the backyard, there is a series of bushes. Now, the bushes and the backyard is raised up and held back from falling by a retaining wall that's made out of cinder blocks. It's about 10 mm-hmm. feet high. Some people say they saw smoke from there. Boy, it reminds me of the grassy knoll, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Some people There's a say, lot of parallels. Oh, Jesus, it's scary how many parallels. Very, very. It's almost like they took a template and just placed it here and then placed it with Bobby two months later. From that point, somebody makes their way from the bathroom, presumed to be the shooter, down the hallway, down the stairs, out in a dirt alleyway to a street. Uh-huh. Now, in the street, there's a white Mustang waiting. Yes. And he claims, whoever that person was, James Earl Ray or whoever, claims that he dropped this bag at that time. Or well, actually, the official story claims that, that he dropped yes. the bag.
2: It's a little bit tricky there because yeah. That's nobody a lot knows of controversy. 100% Nobody knows 100% why, but there's some indication that if it had been Ray or whoever it was coming from that building, um, they would have been, they they either sensed that there were police cars or saw Mm -hmm. what they thought were police cars and dropped the material and tried to hide out in a doorway.
0: It never sat right with me when I heard that part of it. It it just didn't. I mean, uh, apparently he was a a car length and a half from escaping. To drop it right at that point, it would be almost as if the police officer was right on top of him, and I don't think that was the case. I think he was some 20 or 30 feet away.
2: Um, well, you know, I, my thing is is I'm, I, I, I'll i recognize the controversy over it, but I'm a criminal in the heat of the moment, and you mm-hmm. can actually go back into some of Ray's older crimes and some of the crazy stuff he did in the heat of the moment yes, sir? in trying to escape. It wouldn't be completely out of character. Okay,
0: fair enough, fair enough. Um,
2: but, I mean, I, I, I'm mm-hmm. again, the actual particulars of the shooting are something, I don't want to say they're a mystery, but there's holes there uh, yeah. that we can't completely explain. Okay. Would I be shocked if there was a shot from the bushes instead of the rooming house? Probably not. Um, then again, if it was, I, I'm also somebody who, if it was Ray yes. firing the shot, Mm-hmm. To kill. I wouldn't shock me either.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of and, in that camp also. I always thought that it wouldn't be on the possibility that there was two shooters. Now there was only one gunshot, obviously. I was always wondering if perhaps there was a backup.
2: Um Who knows? again, that's something that can't that I don't think can be dismissed easily. One of the things though that, that Larry and I explore mm-hmm. in the book is there is a lot of indications that if this shooting happened it wasn't meant to happen when it happened how it happened one of the things is that Ray's looking for uh, binoculars that are allowed to see in the dark mm-hmm. the rifle exchange he makes in in Birmingham doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense if it's supposed to be just across the street from the motel you don't really need a scope for it um, the bathroom is not going to be a place in the rooming house that I would have tried to shoot from if I'm going to shoot from mm-hmm. the, the the bathroom. I mean cuz remember what I was trying to say is before every that's a communal bathroom. Exactly. So people are going to be knocking on that door if you're going to be in there for a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah. Plus you have to be you you're wherever you do this if you're going to do it from the from the from trying to shoot King in his motel, you have to in some way know that King's going to come out. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting there waiting all the live long day. Um, it's just the indications are, if you look at it, and it's all circumstantial, uh, that if this thing was supposed to happen, it was supposed to happen at a longer distance uh, towards the evening at a place where you knew King was going to speak, at least that would make a lot more sense than waiting outside of his rooming house in a bathroom uh per, trying to get binoculars, uh, making a rifle exchange
3: mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. long
2: distance rifle that's not necessary at the distance that you were at the Lorraine, um and mm-hmm. the and Bessie Brewer's rooming house. So mm-hmm. again, it's it's to be honest with you, it's not an issue we go tremendously into because we feel regardless that Ray had a uh some consciousness of a role in this thing. Okay. So whether he was shooting, mm-hmm. or whether or not he was, you know, lesser involved than what has been portrayed by the official version, we're not, we're not tremendously sympathetic to James or Ray. Okay. So we still think he's a key to understanding the case.
0: No, that that makes perfect sense to me. Also, we talked about parallels between the two, and I had put this to Larry last week. Do you feel that he was a patsy in the same way that Oswald was a patsy? But
2: you just um, been answered that by <laughs> saying he was cognizant. This, this is. Uh, it's a very tricky matter because uh, I'm somebody who I, I guess that you could argue is out of the mainstream, even to some extent on Kennedy. I am very open to the idea that Oswald even fired shots in Dilly Plaza. Okay. Well, I don't believe he was alone, and I'm mm-hmm. also just as equally open to the idea that he didn't. But I, I tend in the direction that Oswald was more conscious of his role in the Kennedy assassination than most people do.
3: Okay. Um, fair enough, that being fair. said, mm-hmm.
2: that being said, I definitely think James Earl Ray was stalking Martin Luther King. I definitely think James Earl Ray had a pretty good sense mm-hmm. of what was happening, going to happen to Martin Luther King. And I think the new evidence that Ray, that uh, Larry and I are exploring, and that some people have explored superficially, suggests that there was a bounty offer on Martin Luther King. And if that's the case, again, I think Ray. One of the speculations we have is that Ray was supposed to just be some sort of a spotter, and that he saw, being impulsive the way he Mm -hmm. historically was, he saw the opportunity to jump the gun, excuse the pun, (laughs) and go after Dr. King and collect a larger share of a bounty.
0: Well, that makes perfect sense, too. Also, it's very plausible. Let's talk a little bit about the White Knight's the kluxes, as I call them. Can we go into the inner sanctum of those people for a little bit and just you can tell us the ideology behind what brought about the assassination and the religious fever that was there?
2: Um, yeah, let me, let me talk a little bit about that. First off, um, again, I want to reemphasize it's a working theory. I think mm-hmm. it's probable. I don't know. It's definite. Um, the one thing that people have to understand is, First off, I think people have a misperception about the Klan as a whole. Um, the Klan is almost like concentric circles. The people that we all think we know about are the sort of, for lack of a better term, the redneck types mm-hmm. um, who yeah. general—you'll do general violence, um, mm-hmm. break, you know—have rallies, burn crosses. But you get further, deeper into the Klans there are people in the in the middle of those, at the core of those, people who are like in the white citizens' councils, Mm -hmm. upper-level people who don't get their hands dirty as much. So there's inner sanctums in all the clans. But the clans were also, they were united by sort of a common theme to some extent, but they were very decentralized also. I mean, every county practically had its own clan, especially in the south. And the Midwest, Hmm. Um, but they're also in the West. I live in a town, as a matter of fact, in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. Northeast, where not too far from where I live used to be the headquarters of a clan, a Clavern up here. Wow! Um, I've had, I've had, I had teachers in high school, and Mm -hmm. I went to school in New Jersey, who had crosses burnt on their lawn.
0: Oh man! Um, One
2: of my close friends had them. So it's not just limited to the South. Okay. But, but. It's also important to understand that this decentralization, most clans were motivated by the desire to protect the Southern way of life, racism. Uh, you know, they hated blacks mm-hmm. um, and they hated integration and they hated the things that Martin Luther King stood for. But there were some clans um, and some groups that were outside of the clan, like the National States' Rights Party that certainly were associated with clans but weren't for their other reasons weren't directly involved with them that were motivated by a separate stream of thought and it wasn't just racism like plain old I was born into a culture that was segregated racism where there was white colored Mm -hmm. white you know water fountains and black water fountains and whites are superior and racial supremacy they had a religious foundation their world view.
0: This is very chilling for me.
2: um, Well, it should be even more chilling for you because it still exists in the United States. Mm. And when they said, when they came out with the recent Homeland Security support and Mm -hmm. said, beware of the rise of right-wing extremists, um, I would be a bit worried about that, too. Um, And a lot of the guys, by the way, who Larry and I have as persons of interest, Mm -hmm. um, as potential suspects, they're still alive. Um, these particular groups of people those those kinds of people mm. they had a very different biblical interpretation for one thing they felt that the true chosen people were Anglo-Saxons and that the Jews were perpetrating a huge fraud they were motivated even more probably by anti-Semitism than they were by racism
3: Really?
2: and they sort of believed that there were, I mean, it goes that theology involves different strains from in the Garden of Eden,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and that Jews came from a relationship between Eve and the devil, mm. and that Anglo Saxons were the chosen people who came from the other strain. Um, but they also believed that the manifestation of that in the modern world in the 60s were that Jews were part of a cabal that were manipulating blacks to disrupt. The Way of Life for Whites and that as a corollary to this uh, eschatology, which in theological studies is the study of the end times for mm-hmm. then the end times was a race war more or less
0: oh, um,
2: where eventually the whites would triumph when I say whites, I mean Christian whites um, and, okay.
0: Um,
2: or their, their
0: interpretation mm-hmm. of what
2: Christianity was So if you were to go to um, a meeting of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, you might have, and these were followers of this movement, um, it's been called British Israelism, but the modern term for it is uh, the Christian Identity Movement. If you go to a a meeting then and meeting now, Mm -hmm. you'll get very conventional biblical talk and sermons. But then it drifts off into, you know, what the Jews are doing, the blacks are doing, what you need to do against the Jews, what you need to do against the blacks. Um, And again, it was a zealotry, and I don't Mm -hmm. think it's an accident that when you look at uh, acts of racial terrorism, and that's what it was, terrorism, in the United States in the 1960s, no group probably comes remotely close to the level of violence of the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan which was a group that started in the early 60s. The guy who ran it was a guy named Sam Bowers, and the FBI suspects that Sam Bowers' white knights may have been behind as many as 300 separate acts 300. of racial terrorism. 300. If you think about that for a second, over a course of four to five years, what would the United States be thinking if uh, a terrorist organization, was Al-Qaeda, exactly that. wasn't part of... Uh, 300 separate, and m- much of it was bombings. Bombing of synagogues, bombings of black churches, shootings, uh, just drive-by shootings into homes, and actual uh, murders and assassinations. And the the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi were part of a... a were behind so many of them. Um, and again... I don't think it's an accident when you you see it in the modern day that when you're motivated not just by, you know, everyday dislike and prejudice, when Mm -hmm. you're motivated by religious commitment, that can lead to very positive things, you know, humanitarian missions, but it can also have that dark side and these guys were the dark side. And the White Knights were one group. And then there was another group that it wasn't a clan per se the national states rights party but they were the people who manipulated clans I see. um and they were a political party and the clan most clans again i told you there's that were the, the clans that were motivated by the everyday let's stop integration mm-hmm. in the united states they didn't even want to deal with the national states rights party because in some respect they were too violent and too anti-semitic they wanted to focus on these. The, the the conventional clans wanted to focus on getting doing stuff to blacks, and the National States Rights Party because they were motivated by Christian identity theology. Also, they wanted to go after Jews first and foremost. Between those those two groups, and then sort of the the figurehead at the top, a guy by the name of uh, Swift out of California, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, Wesley Swift, he is uh, the sort of religious leader. He's a minister. Uh, he was a combination of, I guess you would say, Rush Limbaugh and Hitler. Oh, man. Um, I uh,
0: want to ask you, Stuart, where was the center located in state, I almost said province, and what state was it located?
2: Um, well, the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan is... The one we're talking about is actually called the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi or the Mississippi White Knights. And they were located in Meridian, Mississippi, primarily, although they had little sort of adjuncts in other areas in uh, other parts of Mississippi as well. But that was their their primary location, Meridian, Mississippi.
0: And the National States Rights? Is that it? called
2: National States Rights Party, uh, principally two locations. Birmingham, Alabama was probably number one, Mm -hmm. but uh, uh, Georgia, Stone Mountain, Georgia, was not too far behind. Okay. Um, And they were, the Mississippi White Knights were run by a a gentleman by the name of Sam Bowers, who, um, he was behind, if, if the people listening know anything about the Civil Rights Movement, he was behind one of the earliest national acts of terrorism that got national attention, the attacks on the three civil rights workers yeah. in Mississippi called the Mississippi Burnings case.
0: Yeah, watch the movie, He eventually went to
2: jail shortly for for a short period of time for that. But he doesn't go to jail for a, for a very long period of time. He actually died in prison until the 1990s when a number of people, and part of the reason Larry and I are so interested in this, a number of people have been getting tried and going to jail in the 90s because the FBI simply didn't have faith in the criminal system in the 1960s in the South, to willingly sacrifice their informants for for yeah. a trial. Um, so, and again, some of the guys we think we call them persons of interest. That's the mm-hmm. term. I don't know if they use that in Canada. If you don't want to call somebody a suspect, it's like they rung below a suspect. You call mm-hmm. them a person of interest. A lot of our persons of interest are. A number of them are still alive, actually.
0: Did they have a sympathetic ear in Washington?
2: Um, the Mississippi White Knights, both, um, and the National States Rights mm-hmm. Party. Um, they had certain people. Um, you might look at a Senator Eastland in Mississippi, who certainly weren't too far off from them, not ideologically, not theologically, mm-hmm. theologically, but in terms of, you know, wanting to resist integration. Um, I guess if, to the, to, this extent, uh, none of them liked King. Uh, if if you, J Edgar Hoover didn't like King, there mm. were members of the Senate who didn't like King. Obviously, there were many who did respect him, um, but not to the extent, in my opinion, that it would have, that they would have had any kind of fellow traveler type deal where they would have joined together to kill King. Um, the FBI actually, and it almost varied by the state. The FBI actually went after the Klan in Mississippi and the White Knights pretty vigorously in comparison to how they did it in other states.
0: Was that orders from Bobby to do that?
2: Um, well, Bobby to an Kennedy? extent, yes. They, I mean, it, but, I mean, if you go to other areas of the country, they seem pretty lax. But in Mississippi, they, they cracked down. It's in part because <laughs> Mississippi was one of the few states where in different parts of the city eventually by the late sixties even local law enforcement started to turn against the Klan Um, and remember again the Klan in Mississippi especially the white knights Mm. were more violent more disruptive than they were in other states so looking at it economically speaking they That becomes a problem for tourism, for economics, for business. Um, it becomes a problem. So Mississippi started to, to some extent, try and crack down on it because it got so bad. It got so out of hand.
0: Wow, well, I never knew that. You just educated me. We're going to take a station break right now, Stuart. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark
1: for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. Brent Holland.
0: But before we do, I just want to play this little clip about the Ku Klux Klan. Just let me set up the clip. Folks, this clip is pretty disturbing, actually. It's two songs abbreviated that were written by the Ku Klux Klan. I don't know exactly who, and I don't really give a shit, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, but I just want to get across the mentality of these people and what people were fighting for in the 60s in terms of civil rights so without further ado here they are the kluxes
4: You niggers listen now, I'm gonna tell you how, but keep from getting tortured when the planet's is on the prowl, say at home at night, and lock your doors up tight,
2: don't go outside or else you'll find those crawls in the
0: burning dry. Okay, it's enough of that stuff. You're
1: listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now, and now your host, Brent Holland.
0: You're listening to Night Fright, I'm your host, Brent Holland, and you're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM at Laurentian University, beautiful Sudbury, and we had a spring day today, thank goodness, it's about time, it's the longest winter I can ever remember in my life, and you can listen to Night Fright, we broadcast every Wednesday between three... And 5 p.m. in the afternoon, and 10 at midnight on Wednesdays. I just want to say hey to Deborah Frankel. Hi, Deborah. You are also listening to Caper Radio, Cape Breton University in God's Country, Sydney, Nova Scotia, every Wednesday, 3:30 to 5:30 p.m. You're listening to CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University, rockin' Thunder Bay. And Sunday nights at midnight is the time to listen there. And I want to say hey to my buddy Jason Wellwood. How you doing, Jason? Hope things are well in Thunder Bay. If you're listening right now in Thunder Bay on Sunday night at midnight, thanks for listening. You are listening to CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the eastern townships in Sherbrooke, Quebec. And they're airing the show between 9 and 11 p.m. every Saturday. Hey, David Teasdale, CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, Winnipeg. Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings at 1 a.m. How you doing, Jared? Sound FM, my buddy Road Dog. 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo. Sunday nights, Monday mornings, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. They air three shows back-to-back.
1: You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now.
0: And now your host,
1: Brent Collin.
0: We are speaking with... Stuart Wexler. Stuart Wexler is working on a book with Larry Hancock, who was on last week, if you are following our series on the Martin Luther King assassination. And the book is called, Bringing On Again, The Five-Year Effort to Kill Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I want to say, if you're interested in the conspiracy aspects of all this, the Kennedy assassination, the uh, Martin Luther King assassination, and the Bobby Kennedy assassination, a great place to go is the JFK Lancer website, W. J-F-K-Lancer, L-A-N-C-E-R, dot com. Or if you want, check out the Mary Farrell website, which is triple W also, Mary, M-A-R-Y, F-E-R-R-E-L-L, dot org. And just before the break, I was asking Stuart about the intricacies of the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan, and he was saying there was another white supremacist group called the National States States Rights Party. Thank you. Now I would like to go into the Canadian connection, and there's a huge Canadian connection here with organized crime families in Montreal, in Toronto, Windsor, right across that whole what we call the 401 is the most traveled highway in Canada. I wonder if you could start us off, and you had told us in the beginning that Part of his escape route, James Earl Ray, who's the perpetrator of the crime, or supposed perpetrator of the crime, made his escape north to Detroit and then crossed over at Windsor. I was wondering if you could pick it up at that point.
2: Well, it's actually the second time Ray escapes to Canada. The first time is in, okay. uh, in the summer of 67, when he goes to Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um This is, again, he's gone to Atlanta after the King shooting on April 4th, up through Detroit, on through Windsor, into Toronto. Now, in Toronto, he rents essentially, and and there's fuzziness and controversy around this. Mm. Um, He actually rents two different sort of apartments, a rooming house and an apartment, Mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm. Uh, He does one in the day and one in the evening. And then things get a little bit tricky. Ultimately, um, he pursues different identities to attempt to get a passport to flee the country, um, has some lack of success, and eventually uh, gets a passport uh, for Raymond Sneed. He actually, it's actually spelt wrong on the passport, it's Sneya. Um, and uses that passport to go to Canada. Now, along the way, there's a lot of sort of interesting possibilities and stories um, that can be spawned in many different directions. Uh, for instance, uh, he gets a visit from a, what we call a fat man. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how he's known. We actually know his name now, who delivers a thick package to James Earl Ray. Um, and, you know, James already says it's one thing, some people think it's another. Um, they actually eventually find the so-called Fat Man, and the Fat Man says that he had just found the package and it had Ray's rooming house address mm. on it, and he, in a phone booth, and Ray had left it there by accident, he brought it to him. Mm. Um, he then also, in the... If, you know, not too long ago, um, made some comments that were very suggestive about who knows if he was doing it from first-hand information or not, suggesting that he feared for his life. Um, a lot of people have questions about that. Um, a lot of people have questions about the nature of the aliases that Ray not only got mm-hmm. this second time around, um, but got the first time around through Canada and into the United States and there's a lot of questions about the aliases, I think a lot of that is, in fact, overhyped and misused. But
0: Can I stop you there for a second, Stuart?
2: Yes, maybe maybe I can explain some of that, but go ahead.
0: Okay, you were talking about the rooming house. That was in Toronto? There was one during the day and one at night? Both in Toronto? Yes. Okay. Yes. Where did he get the funding for this?
2: Well, I mean, he wasn't exactly doing a big-time... Room. Uh, I mean, he wasn't staying at the Waldorf Astoria.
0: No, I understand. But still, um, he had to make a decision. You know. There's,
2: there's, there's a lot of this. fact, that he was low on money in the last few, in the, in the, in the weeks before the King assassination. Mm-hmm. The thing to understand about Ray is a couple of things. We don't. He had some. It, he robbed banks, and there's some suggestion. And even robbed Banks, by the way, in Europe after he fled to Europe. Oh,
3: um, that I didn't know.
2: There's, didn't there's know there. some suggestion. Mm-hmm. That he robbed the bank not too long after getting out of, um, out of prison and escaping from prison in, in 1967. Okay. Um, there's some suggestion that he dealt in low-level narcotics dealing. Hmm. Um, uh, it's, the question is how much would he have needed? Um, and then, of course, there's always the possibility. He, he claims that he's getting the money over time from a guy by the name that he calls Raul.
0: Right. We're going to um, get into that in a
2: second. We'll, we'll get into Raul. Yeah. Um, okay. And then there's always the possibility that he was fronted some money by whoever um, saw him as possibly being involved, you know, were, we're conspiring with him.
0: Okay. Now, the fat so, man, I'm presuming he's Canadian. Did you yeah, find
2: Yeah, we know his name.
0: Oh, you did? Well... If you want to give his name, that's fine. I was going to ask you: was there any connection between him and organized crime?
2: Again, there's, there's, no one's been ever able to firmly tie him to anything. All Only. we know is that he feared hmm. for his life. Oh. Firmly identify? Yes. Um. He made a comment to the effect of: "These are the kinds of people who will kill you." But the, given all the, you know, the, the, uh-huh. the range of suspects that people have offered for having killed King, that could include a lot of people. Okay. It doesn't necessarily have to be organized crime. Gotcha. And I would add that's that I, I'm i very skeptical of organized crime involvement only because I don't see a core motive for why they would do it. But, but proceed on.
0: Okay, fair enough. No, that's fair enough. And was the fat man in Toronto, I suspect? And he was a resident uh, yes, of Toronto? Yes, he was. Okay. Yes, he was. Any chance he could have been involved in helping Ray to get those aliases and... I know we delivered the package but were you able to get any in-depth no, I mean, information the, on him
2: I I think that, the, that, that, I, I think that it, all parties agree that he probably the package itself probably mm-hmm. included alias material okay, the, okay. But, but no one, again the 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 no one's been able to firmly identify I mean, this guy and tie him in except in one sense um, we came across some documents mm-hmm and uh, in, in, on the Mary Farrell side, in fact, that you mentioned, that indicate that the fat man, but we don't really have you know a lot of you know background as to why and how this lead got developed and how reliable mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. But he had a connection to a guy named Earl Anglin James, um, who was a part of some really weird Roman Catholic sect that operated out of North America, hmm. um, one of these really weird split-off sects,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and who actually comes up in the Jim Garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination, oh, man. and who we know eventually is arrested in Canada and has a ton of fake identification of all varieties. Um, and there's uh, you know some people, you, know, you could speculate, I don't say some people, I think we're the first people to ever would have ever brought this to light.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, some people would argue that you know that's where he could have gotten his fake identification from, um, and there would have been a loose connection to the fat man. But again, it's the leads are so you don't have RCMP. You know we have their their end results. We don't have their investigation. Yeah, it's I understand. Up to an end result. I understand. Um, so the RCMP did not release a lot of the files. Um, and then, and by the way, Earl England James ties into David Ferry, so people could make a lot out of that.
0: Absolutely. Again,
2: that's, that's speculative, but yeah. there's also the fact, and this has been revealed by a reporter up where you guys are, uh-huh. that another place that he was staying at or frequenting was run by a guy who was some, something of a con man himself, and maybe the identification came from there. Maybe the identification came from. Uh, a guy named Jules Rico Kimball, who he might have met on his first way up to uh, Canada. It's, there's, there's a lot of speculation, and one of the things that gets ignored is that Ray himself mm-hmm. um, was not adverse, was not unknown to use fake names, um, was familiar with what the procedures involved in getting fake identification, and that he himself um, has said that he although he's given somewhat conflicting stories, that he investigated these aliases, that he looked into newspapers to try and get them and that he called the actual people um, uh, at least in two of the cases and asked them and opposed as a government official and asked them do you have a passport Mm -hmm. and acted accordingly Um, and so There may not be as much mystery to the aliases as we think. I'm not adverse to the idea that he had some help getting them, especially the the Galt alias. I think that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of people spin that into, you know, CIA and the Pentagon. And I don't understand why they would give him, if they have all this information on all these names, why they would give him the wrong spellings. Yeah, uh, why he would use those names to do things like join dancing classes. Why he wasn't using those names to buy the gun, mm-hmm. uh, and and then most importantly, if Ray was if Ray was supplied these fake fake passports, identifications, etc., by an intelligence agency, why won't Ray simply say that? Because Ray has said quite a bit of things about you know support their ideas that he was being run by as some operative I don't particularly believe them Mm -hmm. but why what does Ray have to lose by saying he doesn't even say Ray doesn't even say that Raul gave him the aliases in other words if there was a real deep thing to these aliases that involved people setting him up as a patsy Ray has himself never acknowledged or given any indication that was the case when he has obviously been more than willing in the past to give information to suggest he was a taxi. Okay. I can believe that he may have had help in getting some of these aliases, although I do mm-hmm. think he could have gotten a number of them on his own. But I don't see why it has to extend beyond the normal criminal element that you would probably go to and that you would know about from your time in prison who are in the business of doing that kind of a thing.
0: No, okay, and I don't see enough. anything
2: in the aliases, and we can go into some of the supposed anomalies that would suggest that he didn't. For instance, not to just—I won't beat this to death. You know, people say, "Oh, well, he got—he—he—you know—they don't look too different from him, and he got—they uh, live relatively near each other." Well, there was a map that was found in his residence that showed circled where these guys live basically. So is it that unrealistic to think that James O'Reilly himself scattered them out and wanted to see if they looked like him? Mm-hmm. And if so, wouldn't he have chosen people, depending on the phone type of phone directory he used, that lived relatively near each other so that he would not have to travel to the ends of the earth to try and find the aliases?
0: Yeah, actually I I mean, have-
2: that's that's the That's the kind of thing that I
1: think is is ignored. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland.
0: I had suggested actually to Lamar Waldron, who was on the show three weeks ago, that in those days when there was an election in Canada, they used to put the electoral lists up on telephone poles. At the corner of every street. So if you lived on that particular street or in that little section of streets, you would go down to the telephone pole just to make sure that your address was correct and your name was correct. And I thought, well, there you
2: go. Yeah. In fact, we might have to throw that into the book because, uh, no, that's the kind of thing that, you know, people who who paint Reyes as complete incompetent ignore. I mean, that it would have. He he's done it before. Mm-hmm. There's actual reports of him going to libraries and researching fake identification, okay, um, and fake names. And, and there you go. There's one very convenient way. Would those addresses have been? Li- would those have been listed in, in, in according to address proximity?
0: Yes, they would have been. So would all Absolutely. the people from a
2: given town? Yeah. There and you
0: go. Um, we, of course, we don't do that anymore. But up until about the late seventies, I would say, I would say the middle seventies. And then we flipped over to computers and everything else, and it was much more scrutinized and much tougher, much, much tougher to get on the list and stuff. It wasn't just out in the open for everybody to see because of that privacy issue. In those days, they didn't have anywhere around it. They would just print all these damn lists out, and they might be, oh, I don't know, an inch thick. And you would just flip the page over to make sure that your name corresponded with your address now I can't remember if there was any other information but your address and your name. But certainly it listed everybody who was living in that house, mm-hmm. and their name and their middle name and initials and everything. So it wouldn't be that difficult. By I mean, extension, so they, to and, and the one alias
2: that everybody makes mm-hmm. a tremendous deal over is this this the Eric Galt alias, which is yes. actually one yes. he got on his first trip to Canada. That's right. But there's there's a lot of innocent explanations for that. And 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 first of all, a lot of it doesn't make sense. I mean. For one thing, it wasn't a real person based on the way he wrote it. He wrote Eric Starvo Galt um, and he would have needed the birth certificate. He would have needed the real middle name to get the birth certificate, to get a passport to get to where you know, to get the to fake get ID. Right information. Um yeah. and I mean he continued to use that alias as he went through the United when he went back to the United States um in the months before the King assassination. But I mean he was using it for things like uh applying for a locksmithing course, which I think would have meant to pick locks. But the, the bottom line point is that it wasn't James Bond stuff that he was using it for. Gotcha. And certainly gotcha. if they want, and it's hard to imagine the government giving him a fake alias that would have gotten him caught if he tried to use it to get out of the country.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um you wanted you because then he could talk and squeal and say nice. what happened. Yeah. Um, so um, let's just say I think it's I, I think that there's I mean and then the other big deal that a lot of people make out of that alias is that if he used the Saint Vincent, he changed it to Eric Escal, and the real Eric Saint Vincent Galt in Canada started writing his name as Eric Eskalt. But he started doing that before Ray even went to Canada the first time. Isn't and right. people say, well, Ray had not been to yeah, Toronto. Yeah. Um, but, but but. Ray, Ray, was,
0: Ray was passing Ray right through to Toronto to get to Windsor to come back into the United States because he crossed over between Windsor and Detroit every time.
2: Right. And a lot of people, and there's, there's newer, according to Nichols, there's newer evidence that said he spent at least one day in Toronto before he went to Montreal. Yeah. Um, in nineteen sixty seven. That's not the second time but the mm-hmm. first time. And so and then there's some reports, although this has never been confirmed, that uh Eric Saint Vincent Gault was a a renowned hunter in Canada. This this is something that still needs to be confirmed. And that he had actually had like, you know, mm-hmm. signed autographs and ma pic- and signed pictures in magazines. And the way he writes his name, which is a lot, a lot of people make a lot of hay over this. His periods are very big, so they look like O's, and everyone's saying, "Well, mm. he S T apostrophe V apostrophe again, or not apostrophe period um, would look, could look like Starvo." But if indeed the reports are true, and he had his, and he was a well-known hunter who had his name and signature in magazines. Mm-hmm then who knows, Ray Could have gone in from that.
0: Any hunters out there, my email is Nightfrightshow at gmail dot com. show at gmail dot com. If you've heard of this fella, um anywhere along the lines going back to the sixties, just give me an email to verify that and I'll tell Stuart right away. Um I'm just gonna do a quick station break. And okay. then we're going to come right back. You had mentioned Raul before, and we're going to get into Raul. Okay. One of the things I'm going to ask you when we come back is if he was just a figment made up of James Earl Ray's imagination. But we'll come back to that. Right now, you know, that damn thing I played before by the Kluxes brought me down so low. I'm going to play this real quick. It's um, a great speech, two speeches of Dr. King's, and I'm going to play them right now.
4: However difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long, because truth trusted will rise again. How long, not long, because no lie can live forever. How long, not long, 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 because you shall reap what you sow. How long, not long. How long. Long forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yes, sir, Yet sir. that scaffold swayed the future. Yes. Behind the dim unknown standing God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. I long not long. I'm sick and tired of power. I'm tired of the war in Vietnam. I'm tired of war and conflict in the world. I'm tired. Of Shooting. I'm tired of hate. I'm tired of selfishness. I'm tired of evil. I'm not going to use violence no matter who says
1: You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. The time is now.
0: And now your host, Brent Holland. And that was Martin Luther King. Folks, you're tuned in to Night Fright, and I'm your host, Brent Holland. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM. We broadcast every Wednesday between 3 and 5 p.m. in the afternoon and 10 at midnight at night. From beautiful Laurentian University, we sit right on a lake here, folks. It is stunningly beautiful. I originally hail from Montreal. I've only been in Sudbury a little over a year, and it's stunningly beautiful. I can't say enough about the beauty of this place. You're listening to CAPER Radio, Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, every Wednesdays between 3.30 and 5.30 p.m., CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University thunder bay sunday nights at midnight cjmq 88.9 fm the voice of the eastern townships in sherbrooke quebec and that's about an hour and a half an hour fifteen minutes depending on how fast you're going south of montreal and i've been there many times actually it's a beautiful beautiful city CJUM 101.5 fm university of manitoba another beautiful campus canada you know has all these great campuses it's unbelievable and that's in winnipeg wednesday nights thursday mornings 1 a.m sound fm 100.3 fm university of waterloo sunday night monday mornings 2 a.m to 6 a.m
1: you're listening to night fright your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio
0: don't be scared folks it's only radio is now and now your host Holland. And we are back, and we are speaking with Stuart Wexler. Stuart Wexler and Larry Hancock have gotten together and are putting to book a great book together, and it is called Bringing Armageddon, The Five-Year Effort to Kill Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I want to talk about JFK Lancer. They have been instrumental in helping me with all these series of conspiracy shows I've been doing, from going back to November with the JFK assassination and following right through... With this series on the Martin Luther King assassination and following through again, coming up in June, we're going to be doing one on the Bobby Kennedy assassination. They have been fantastic. As a matter of fact, Deborah, who is the president of JFK Lancer, will be a guest here on the phone, live, coming up in May. So that's one you really want to tune in to listen to. This website that she has put together and this whole organization is a terrific resource. An incredible resource. It has kept all the researchers together, and it is a focal point. Every year in November, they put on a convention where they bring in different people who have released new material to talk about their latest in research, and it's just fantastic. And I'll have some more information about that definitely when Deborah's on. We're going to be talking about that. This has been instrumental year after year after year she's put this on. The website is www J-F-K l-a-n-c-e-r dot com www.jfklancer.com Mary Farrell is another website you're going to want to frequent org. m-a-r-y f-e-r-r-e-l-l dot org you're listening to Night Fright your
1: voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio the time is now and now your host, Brent
0: Holland. Stuart Wexler. We were going to talk yes. about Raoul. Can you just give us a brief synopsis, just to set up who Raoul is alleged to be, and then we'll go into the details of it and the anomalies behind that one.
2: Essentially, James Earl Ray says that Raoul, and we'll get this. There's a little bit of conflicting, a lot of conflicting information about it. For but sure. The core is is that Raoul is a gun running, drug running criminal type um, who he met um, on his in his escape uh, after his escape from prison um, uh, in Canada and that essentially Raul set Ray up in a gun narcotic smuggling operation and Ray was working for him for money but also because Raul was telling him that he was going to get him the material he needed, Ray needed to get out of the country because remember Ray was an escaped mm-hmm. felon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in within the story, Raul essentially uh manipulates Ray almost like a puppet to go to the places that Ray would but would look suspicious in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ultimately to buy the gun that Raoul um, by implication, will eventually use to kill King and that Ray would, and, and then flame Ray with it. So basically, in the, under the umbrella of using Ray in a, um, you know, gun running, narcotics running operation, Raul is actually setting Ray up. Uh, for the King assassination as a patsy. That's James Earl Ray's story at its core about Raoul.
0: That's perfect. Let's talk about its credence.
2: I have a lot of problems with it. Okay, fair Um, enough. I don't think, it it may not be a complete figment of of James Earl Ray's imagination, but, I mean, for amongst other things, there Mm -hmm. have been many conflicting descriptions. Of Raul. Um, he's described Raul as having dark red hair, as being a Mexican, as being a French-Canadian, hmm. um, blondish hair, hmm. um, sandy-colored hair. Um, it's Now, he'll claim that, oh, that's somebody getting my story wrong, but it's certainly... Certainly, the number of times that people have reported an account of Raul where, a different, where something is different is problematic. Some of the things he has Raul supposedly doing, um, the one that always stands out to me is at one point, James O'Reilly orders a bunch of camera equipment. If you read the details of this, this is clearly camera equipment that's aimed at somebody taking pictures of an act while they're in the act, if you know what I mean.
0: Okay, fair enough.
2: Um, and... He claimed it was Raul, but not only does it make no sense that a gun running, narcotics running guy would want remote controlled camera with one way mirrors and and things like that, um, he never gave the stuff to Raul, um, if you believe his story. So, and and there's many different instances like that in the Raul story where you sit there and go, that makes no sense for Raul to have done. Um,
0: What Ray's claiming he's done
2: what Ray's claiming he's doing now could there be people who Ray is modeling Raul after
0: so he could be a composite then
2: Uh, some sort of a composite Mm -hmm. and then you argue that you know if you were asking me my best bet but it's all speculative that's fine is Ray inventing a guy like that to try and on the one hand send the signal out to people that he has information that if he were to wind up dead could be problematic for them because mm. he's in prison. But on the other hand, they know it's a fake story that wouldn't actually lead to some any okay. of them being tried for anything. Now, I would lean towards that. I'm very skeptical that there was an actual Raul who was walking around meeting Ray and manipulating him and in the invisible hand that got him all to all these places to make him look like he's mm-hmm. talking king. Etc. Um We are very skeptical of the Raoul story.
0: James Earl Ray claims he met him originally in a club during Expo 67, 1967. In Montreal. In Montreal. As I said before, I hail from Montreal, and I know where that club is. It's no longer called that same club. It's more of a restaurant now, a touristy restaurant. The old port where this club is situated, right on the, the main strip of the old port, it faces right where the docks used to be. The docks are no longer the docks there. They've moved them. It's a very touristy uh, area. They called it Old Montreal because, in fact, it's one of the oldest places in North America. All I have to say is that club in 1967 where he declares that he met Raoul was a gay club.
2: <laughs> I'm, see, I'm glad I'm in the phone conversation with you. Okay. Um, now because that's interesting uh there's
0: but I have the only another... allegation
2: i've ever heard that ray was gay was that he took some some favors in in prison, in prison. yeah so to do mm-hmm. a lot of people but all the other indications were that he was as straight as an arrow and that's interesting that you would meet this you know international man of mystery in a gay club of all things
0: Who knows? The other weird anomaly is some people think that Ray was hypnotized. And you're going to laugh, but right around the corner from this club is where five years earlier in 1963 in the summer, somebody from the Canadian government swears they saw Lee Harvey Oswald handing out pamphlets. And honest to God, this is what's so weird about it is these are two assassins of the biggest assassinations in the history of the world, and the two of them have this commonality of being in Montreal five years apart, virtually two blocks away from each other.
2: I think, I, I'm i familiar with the story you're telling, and I've actually investigated it. Okay. Um, uh, I I, believe that what ultimately happened was they, resolved, they figured out that it was not Oswald and Montreal. Uh-huh. But I found it very interesting... If I recall, I've investigated so many things on Kennedy, it boggles my mind. Mm. If I recall, I was very suspicious of the fact that the group that they were associating Oswald with Mm -hmm. in Canada was one that eventually had a march to where the goal was to get onto a boat and go to Cuba. I see, I see. I, I, I remember that the details of it... Suggest that it probably was not Oswald, but it was an interesting story. But that is interesting that they paint them in the same same area, because no, um, I'm not as familiar with the geography to know that it was no. the same part.
0: I'll send you the map. I had sent various researchers the map, and you know what's just up the street from all that is McGill University Allen Memorial.
2: And ah, you, the I'll CIA. Tell you something interesting about McGill that I remind was reminded of myself tonight was. Uh, the guy Jules Rico Kimball, who some people think of, that who who was n- living not too far from Ray in, in Canada, and who was in fact or c- closely connected to the Ku Klux Klan,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, who he who he claims he was CIA, but very skeptical. He claimed to be into into hypnosis and to be working on hypnosis at McGill.
0: Oh um, but, man!
2: But I'm I'm incredibly skeptical of. Of all sorts of, you know, These mentoring and candidate type scenarios, even in the even in the uh, RFK case, I'm very very skeptical. Okay. So, okay, um, But it, that is fascinating. The, the gay club thing is absolutely fascinating. Um, again, I think, uh, I think Ray essentially, if, if you buy our story, given the prevalence of white supremacist groups in, in prison. Um, Ray, has to, Ray wants to get out of prison, mm-hmm. and Ray wants to eventually, possibly, under our theory, get some money.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: At the same time, Ray does not want to get killed while he's in prison, so at some point he has to do a dance, and that dance would probably have to involve telegraphing the idea that he has information that could get people into trouble without actually getting them into trouble.
0: That's and interesting. And what
2: would be a convenient way of doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. It's funny how it all ties together.
2: Yeah, I mean, that. I mean, all this stuff is, is, to some extent, speculative. I'm just going on the weight of the evidence and then deducing stuff from
0: mm-hmm. it. I thought it was really strange that these two fellows would be in Montreal at the same, not the same time, but under the same set of circumstances, so to speak. And then with the Allen Memorial right up the street, I thought, oh, what is going on in Montreal? Yeah, there's... And gonna, there's yes. certainly a
2: lot of interesting things, and then you get into the whole uh, term thing, and yeah. yeah, yeah, it could it get very strange. I always, I think in 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 this case, Canada is one of the areas that needs to be investigated is in both cases more, but especially in King. I can tell you that one of the things that is of interest to us is you mentioned organized crime connection in Toronto. Yes, there's also a white supremacist connection in Toronto, and in is fact. That right? Uh, yes, there was uh, two groups, the Western Front and uh-huh. the Natural Order. And the Natural Order actually was an offshoot of the National States' Rights Party.
3: Okay. And
2: one of the things that, and this is work that was done, in the work that was done by John Nickel recently in uh, for BBC, for, was it the CBC up there?
0: That's right, CBC. Um, mm-hmm.
2: um, he pointed out that he has files from the RCMP, that indicate that in late 1970s, when the House reinvestigated this with the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the Congress of the United States, they actually queried and investigated, but we don't know why, and that's something I would love to find out. They were interested in two very specific white supremacists who were living in uh, Toronto at the time, one of whom had reformed by that time, by the time Ray was there. But Mm -hmm. the other one... Um, I also, I was able to find his first name. They only knew his last. Both of these men came to Toronto from Birmingham, from the National States Rights Party, Hmm. and were part of what we call the National Order, which was the Canadian sort of branch of the National States Rights Party, to the point where the Canadian government actually forbade them from distributing uh, NSRP material in Canada. And they were both investigated. And one of the more interesting things that people have a tough time explaining is why did James O'Reilly hmm. go from Toronto, from Montreal, the first time he was in Canada, mm-hmm. to Birmingham, a place he had never been to before? Yeah. And well, he set up shop literally walking distance from the headquarters of the National States Rights Party uh, when he went to Birmingham. Yes, yes, yes. So was he? told to go to Birmingham by people who were members of the National States Rights Party, um, or by a Jules Rico Kimball who was a Klan member. That has been something that we're interested in. We and I'm very interested in why the House specifically went after these two guys. And I'm very interested in the one guy, David Stanley, who was reformed by this point in time. He was no longer a member of a white supremacist organization. But I'm very interested in him, if he's still alive, because, just to send that that out to your listeners, because I think he would have a lot of insight into the nature of, first of all, why, he might be able to tell me why Congress came looking.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, But he might be able to tell us about this guy he left Birmingham with to go back to Toronto. And he might be able to tell us what the nature of the... Natural order and the NSRP activities were in Canada. Yeah, I'd like Was to Was there an so. overlap between them and criminal activity? I'm
0: um, going to give out my email address once again, folks. If you want to contact me for any reason, for that matter, but specifically if you have any information about what Stuart Wexler is talking about, please email me at NightFrightShow at gmail dot com. Once again, that's show at gmail.com
2: I'm looking into specifically the natural order in Canada in the late 1960s but the specific gentleman I would love to talk to if he's still alive would be this gentleman David A. Stanley who again he reformed
3: mm-hmm. he
2: clearly couldn't it's unlikely he was involved in Ray because he had read the book The True Believer um, and realized that the organization he was a part of was practically like the Nazis and oh. decided to abandon them but the other guy did not, so I'd be very interested in him. And it's worth noting one of the things I didn't mention to you. Why do I think the National States Rights Party might have been involved? Well, I told you, for instance, that he was walking right. You know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: he, he when he went to Birmingham, he was literally within walking distance of the NSRP. Um, but one of the we, the leading member of the NSRP became James Earl Ray's attorney, J. B. Stoner. He was the only right. attorney that James Earl Ray did not extend, uh, would not waive attorney-client privilege for. And out of sheer, I, I don't even know, one of the more inexplicable things is this particular guy, J.B. Stoner, mm-hmm. when he ran for governor of uh, Georgia, he hired, this was after the King shooting, he hired James Earl Ray's brother as his campaign manager. And where was J.B. Stoner on the day King was killed? I can tell you he was the FBI's top suspect. And inexplicably, the FBI ex- uh, said he couldn't have been there because he wasn't in Memphis. Where was he? He was in Meridian, Mississippi, partying with the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, man. Oh. And this was a guy who, by the oh. way, to every instance we could find, wherever Martin Luther King went, He went because he went to try and stoke up counter rallies and violence. I mean, people literally got killed in J.B. Stoner's, you know, after J.B. Stoner Mm -hmm. gave a speech um, because he stoked up so much anger and hate. And the question we have is, why wasn't he in Memphis? King was. He almost always follows him, him or his his co- partner in crime, uh, Connie Lynch. They almost always follow King, but they weren't in Memphis that day. Stoner, in fact, again, was in Meridian partying with the White Knights, and that was became inexplicably his alibi, as if you have to be in the city where somebody gets killed in order to be the suspect for of it. Of course, and he had, he had actually, in the past, we know for a fact, had actually contracted out to try and have. King and other civil rights leaders killed in the early 1960s. So Mm. there's, and there's overlap between members of the White Knights and the members of the NSRP. And again, they're united in that Christian identity theology. So,
0: was he ever interrogated? Was Stoner ever uh, interrogated? He was,
2: he was interrogated. He was brought before Congress and of course he denied it. And Mm. the one thing you'll find with J.B. Stoner is everybody will tell you he's very good at not leaving his fingerprints on a crime. He always gets other people to do it for him.
0: Do you feel there's a part of Stoner's character that may be involved in the Raoul character?
2: Um, it's possible. I, I would have my doubts that Stoner himself met with Ray. But one of the things, mm-hmm. if you talk to Lamar, um, one of Lamar's, probably the maybe the most important revelation in Lamar's book when we to the King assassination was this informant whose name he won't reveal who says that a gentleman who worked in Atlanta by the name of Hugh Spake uh, worked with, um, raised money with another gentleman Mm. by the name of Joseph Miltier Mm. to try and kill King. Um, And that Ray actually may have, that Ray called Spake after the crime on his way to Atlanta. That's right. Um, Now, the thing to understand is Lamar uses this and then connects it somehow Tried to connect Joseph Miltier to Carlos Marcello, which is a very tenuous connection at best. Okay. But Joseph Miltier was very good friends, without question, and was a member of mm-hmm. the National States Rights Party, right. and was very good friends with J.B. Stoner.
0: So there you go. There's a connection right there.
2: And that, and to me, and I, and I, I don't want to cast this person, Lamar Lamar, Lamar's a friend of mine, and Lamar does good work. Yeah. To me, it makes a whole lot more sense that J.B. Stoner. Would contract out to the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, who even though, you know, Lamar says, well, they were under FBI, you know, watch. Well, I, we could document that they were more than happy to commit crimes under FBI, FBI watch. But the one thing is, if you're JB Stoner, and you're a Christian identity ideologue, and you're looking for people who will finally actually go ahead and pull off the one thing you people have been trying to pull off for five years in your movement and kill King. Who are you going to go to? You're going to go to the guys who have the track record of 300 acts of racial terrorism. Mm -hmm. You would go to those guys. That would be my, that's my speculation. So So my working theory right now is that um, quite possibly Stoner contracted out to the White Knights and the White Knights. Uh, pulled off
0: the crime. So, Stuart, Uh, in your research, you never found any connection between organized crime, as Lamar has. And I should tell folks, we're talking about Lamar Waldron. He was a guest on this show three weeks ago. His book is called Legacy of Secrecy, and again, you can find information about that on the Lancer website, www.jfklancer.com. And his thesis was that white supremacists farmed out the hit to organized crime who hired James Earl Ray to do the hit on Martin Luther King in a nutshell basically that's it
2: now there, there is without question parts of little bits of pieces of evidence that could go in the direction of organized crime
0: do you think they were involved on in the peripherals even if it's in a case of funding or a case of supplying the documents so he could get his passport and things of that nature I think we lost Stuart folks I better call him back I bet his his battery died <laughs> Stick with me. One second. So we're talking with Stuart Wexler, folks, and he is co-author of a brand new book that's about to be released in the fall he was saying called bringing armageddon the five-year effort to kill dr martin luther king And we were talking about the various aspects the canadian connection of the assassination essentially the assassination was set up like this dr martin luther king was in memphis on april 4th 1968 specifically to take part in a demonstration that the garbage collectors were out on strike they wanted better working conditions more money makes sense They were primarily black, and the city administration was not so receptive to giving them more money. They were persecuted. Let's face it, it was the 60s. Now, Martin Luther King was there to take part in this demonstration, really to to give it a visibility. He was staying at a place called the Lorraine Motel. Now, the Lorraine Motel is typical in a motel fashion in that it had two floors. And all the doors led outside. And on the second floor, there was an outdoor gallery, a walkway. That you would walk along, and then at the end of the walkway, you would walk down the stairs. Martin Luther King came out around 6 o'clock at night, April 4, 1968. stood outside, and a shot rang out. Now, there's a very famous picture you may have seen. There's uh, There's a lot of people pointing across the street. And they're pointing at a rooming house that was across the street. It was a dilapidated building. On the second floor, there was a window ajar. A window was open. Now, that window led to a bathroom. It was a common bathroom, which was very common in those days. And in that bathroom, they alleged the shot came from a shooter by the name of James Earl Ray. James Earl Ray was purported to have done the shooting. He was purported to be a bit of a white supremacist, part-time hood, kind of a low-life loser, to be honest with you. Once the shot took place, many witnesses claim they all saw smoke coming from the backyard, which was about 10 feet off the surface of the street. It had a retainer wall of cinder bricks. Above the cinder bricks was a series of bushes. It didn't have a fence. People say they saw a shooter there. They also say they saw a puff of smoke come from there. Now, whoever did the shooting on the second floor ran down the hallway disguised his face on the way down the hallway, stopped by James Earl Ray's room, picked up something there, ran down a set of stairs that led to a dirt alleyway, and there was a couple of footprints found there. Outside the dirt alleyway, as he ran to the front of the building, no longer the back of the rooming house, but the front of the rooming house, which of course was facing the same way as the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King had just been hit, but you know, obviously blocked by the building. It was he was in the front of the building now of this rooming house. He ran outside, turned left, and he is purported to have seen a police officer through this bag that he had of all his his laundry, his gun, all the stuff that would convict him as if he had done the shooting, supposedly threw it there. He then jumped into a waiting white mustang sped off and he was going to make his escape directly to canada but this is the bizarre part before heading to canada he decided to go 450 miles in the opposite direction so could you imagine we're in sudbury right now instead of going to ottawa right along the trans canada you head down to toronto and then go up to ottawa it doesn't make sense does it? it doesn't make any sense whatsoever so he ends up in atlanta And he dumps his car to take the bus to Canada, but he dumps his car three blocks from Martin Luther King's church. Anyways, Ray makes it up, goes to Detroit, crosses over at Windsor. From Windsor to Toronto, where he picks up an alias, he stays in a rooming house. He stays in one rooming house during the day and another rooming house at night. While he's there, he manages to get a Canadian passport which is even more bizarre, how the hell he gets his Canadian passport, we're led to believe that he has connections in Toronto somehow, makes his way to Britain, from Britain to Portugal, and then from Portugal back to Britain where he's picked up, because he's managed to get another passport, Canadian passport, because his original one had an alias, and the alias' name was spelt wrong. While he's showing his passport, the proper one with the correct spelling, to the customs guard. The custom guards notice that when he pulls open his wallet, there's another passport inside. So that red flags him right away, of course. What's he doing with two passports, Canadian passports, one with the right spelling, one without? So he's red flagged, he's caught. And he gets charged with the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, in order to pervade the death penalty... He decides to declare himself guilty. He says he was guilty of the crime in order to avoid the death penalty. So he goes to jail. He's in jail three days, and he declares that he made the declaration under duress, and he was fighting for his innocence for the rest of that time. I'm going to give Stuart Wexler a phone call back and see if I can get a hold of him. Then I have a little music for you. Dun, 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 you're listening to Night Fright. That's why I don't sing, folks. I only do instrumental music. Night Fright, Night Fright. Don't worry. Everything's cool.
2: Um, I think where you left, left left off, you asked me about organized crime.
0: Yes, sir. Yeah, that was
2: um, that. And I, What I was going to say was I have, there is some evidence here and there to implicate organized crime, and I don't think Lamar is completely out to lunch there. He has basis for what he says. Um to me, the problem is a sort of a larger issue, which is for Carlos Marcello to take a contract mm-hmm. um talking about a guy who's making money hand over fist right uh, he would be inviting incredible federal scrutiny for money he didn't even need to kill a person who there's no uh, you know. It, i've seen nothing concrete to establish he uh he was you know racist or at least you know violently racist mm-hmm. um it just doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense to me and when you look at the the case um, what appears to be lamar appears to be basing it on uh one is a report of this reporter and i admit it's tantalizing but it was investigated and it, you know it didn't get much past the particular stage, and the other is the report of a of a particular witness, and I I tend to agree with the government that mm-hmm. perhaps what he's heard maybe he's a little bit fantasy prone or maybe it's open to interpretation. It could be. Um. So I just fall back on the idea that it's just it just seems unlikely to me. Okay.
0: And even within yeah, the Mars, fair. Own that's book, fair. Mm. Mm-hmm
2: where he developed, I think, a very solid case uh, implicating Marcello in the Kennedy assassination mm-hmm. with other groups. Mm-hmm. Um, he mentions Marcello basically spilling his guts to an informant, but, you know, the, he spilled his guts to this informant. He didn't mention anything about the King assassination.
0: Ah. He
2: meant he killed Kennedy, but he didn't mention anything about killing King. Okay. So I have got to admit- you gotta ask yourself, why would he confess to one and not the other for instance
0: i haven't read his complete book he managed to send me a pdf copy of it i managed to print out i think it was 20 chapters or something because it's it's 800 pages.
3: Yeah, it's massive.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I'm a one-person show here, so I've got one <laughs> week to read whatever, <laughs> and that's it. Right. No, even 20 chapters, oh, my God. I didn't get the full extent of the book, but uh, I did read his previous book, which I thought was really great.
2: I thought that book was excellent, too. I mean, I'm not going to say I don't think he maybe goes too much with the mob, and in, in, even mm-hmm. in the first book. Um, I do think he makes some valuable contributions, as, again,
0: absolutely, he's a
2: friend of mine. And I think he's a very, very good researcher. Me too. I just think there's a lot more compelling reason to think that if white supremacists were to contract out, they contract out yeah. to their own people, I think the it's people a, they're associated with.
0: They're all pieces to the puzzle, and it's, you know, when you find commonalities, there's commonalities, and somebody may go in this direction, in that direction. It's all about finding out the truth, and I have to give all researchers kudos right across the board for this because there are no millionaires here folks. People do this out of love of country, patriotism, and because they want to know the truth. And if you're out there and you're a budding journalist, if you're interested in this subject matter, go out there. Grab the damn bull by the horns and get going because this generation needs you. There's no question there's a lot of mysteries out there that need to come to the forefront and The researchers I'm presenting to you in this series about Martin Luther King are just an example of the fortitude and the dignity of these people because they're not in it for the money. They're in it for the passion of knowing the truth and because they give a damn about democracy. And that's the essential part of being a journalist and a researcher. Get out there and do it, folks. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. Always question everything and go.
2: I mean, it's important to understand in this particular case that it's representative of what happened in a number of civil rights murders in the
3: 1960s. Um,
2: And King sort of, to me, I would hope that the King case, if it were to reopen, would maybe open up the door to some of these other cases, because the reality was there were structural and cultural reasons why people didn't want to dig too deep or go where they needed to go in these particular cases in the 60s, and those things don't apply any longer. And there are people who are still alive who can go to jail, who should go to jail. Yes. And you don't just let, you don't let murderers go away simply because it's uncomfortable to you to talk about your past and relive your past on those particular matters. Beautiful. you got to you just don't let that you know uh, dr king said justice de- delayed is justice denied absolutely and yes. that applies very much so and in, in this case and in the other cases i it's, it's just sad that we we have certain cases that we bottle up and we put into different categories of you know we don't want to know the truth and that mm-hmm. that's unfortunate oh
0: it's tragic i mean that'll be the destruction of democracy if anything else will be that will be it. It's when people adopt apathy. I'm very fond of saying this. In a democracy, we are the government. The government is responsible to us, not the other way around. And too often, we rely on the government to take care of us.
2: Right. Well, what I tell my kids, I teach I teach government. Uh, oh, okay. I tell them that... that Basically, I don't tell them because I want them to figure it out for themselves. Mm As I always ask them, do you get the government? Ultimately, do you get the government you deserve, or do you get the government, or are there forces beyond your control? And I think there might be something for the latter said, but a lot of what people complain about are things that are within their control if they're willing to dedicate themselves a little bit more to making the processes work.
0: that's a great word you just used, dedication.
2: Um, and I, you know, this is my own little small part. A lot of people do other small parts, but
0: it's essential. Again, it's you, important.
2: I, I don't know if society can survive if you just pick and choose what crimes you're you're going to dig into and what crimes you're going to let pass, and that's that's a terrible thing to have happen. So
0: I agree wholeheartedly with
1: you. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland.
0: You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM. We broadcast every Wednesday between 3 and 5, 10 to midnight. Hey, Deborah Frankel. Beautiful Laurentian University. We sit right on a lake in Sudbury, Ontario. Caper Radio, Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, Wednesdays between... Three thirty in the afternoon and five thirty. I'm Matthew Burke. CILU one hundred two point seven FM, Lakehead University Rock Thunder Bay, Thunder Bay Rock. Sunday night at midnight. Jason Wellwood, how you doing, buddy? CJMQ eighty-eight point nine FM, the Voice of the Eastern Townships in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Every Saturday between nine and eleven. And that's David Teasdale in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Hey, David, good talking with you this week. And that's 9 p.m. to 11 p.m., by the way. CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, another beautiful campus, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Wednesday night, Thursday morning, 1 a.m., Jared Makitiak. And Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario, Sunday night, Monday morning, Three shows back-to-back, back, 2 to 6 in the morning. Road Dog, my buddy Road Dog. You're listening to Night
1: Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland.
0: Back to Stuart Wexler, and we're talking about bringing Armageddon, The Five-Year Effort to Kill Dr. Martin Luther King, a book that he and co-author Larry Hancock are working on that should be out hopefully by the fall. It's astounding, the research that these folks have done, and to bring this to light, to find out what happened behind the truth, what happened behind the Martin Luther King assassination. I want to ask Stuart now, can you bring it up to date for us? Are these organizations still around today? The White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, I guess they'll never go away, although membership, I suspect, is down. And the National States Right Party, are they still around? And how strong are they? Stewart? I think we lost Stewart again. (laughs) Oh, man, I tell you, I swear to God, it's got to be either the RCMP or CIA or Homeland Security. They don't want us talking about Martin Luther King. What can I tell you? This never happens. never happens. Talk about Martin Luther King, JFK, and the phone goes dead. And that's fact. When Larry Hancock was on in November, and we were talking about the JFK assassination, the phone went dead, too. Boom. Everything just shut right off. Oh, man. Let me give him a call back and see if I can get a hold of Hi, Stuart. <laughs> Sorry about that again. That's cool, man. I was just saying it's it's probably the RCMP... Or uh, Homeland Security. <laughs> and I was just, Yeah, or... Yes. I was just relating a story. When Larry was on in November, I think it was the first show, actually, we were talking about the JFK assassination, and the phone went dead the same way it's doing tonight. And I kid you not. So I, I doubt if it's Homeland Security or anything like that, folks. Don't take me for a paranoid, but uh, coincidences are funny, aren't they? Now, I wanted to ask you if you could bring us up to date with the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan and also the National States Rights Party. Are they still around today and are they very strong?
2: Um, let me tell you something that's, that's interesting in the column there. I haven't been able to find National States Rights Party although you can definitely find their offspring in you know the American Nazi Party and mm-hmm. Aryan Nation. Mm-hmm. They're not they're, they're not too far from the tree there. Um, but I have not seen, the white knights were basically dormant hmm. um, until very recently, oh. um, and I'll tell you a story. Okay. Um, uh, one of the people we who's, who we connect to this case is a woman by the name of Kathy Ainsworth, whose mother, Margaret Kappa Machia, uh, Kathy was a, was a radical white knight. Um, Her mother was a uh, radical as well. Mm -hmm. The daughter was killed in an FBI sting, Hmm. This is what I mean by...
0: This was in the 60s?
2: Yes. They basically arranged with an informant to set them up to do, them being Kathy Ainsworth and a a gentleman by the name of Thomas Terrence, they sent them up to, to do a bombing that they knew they would be ready for in advance, and then they shot them when they got there. Tarrant survived, Ainsworth died. Mm. Um, her mother eventually will tell a, a a informant that her daughter was a part of a group that, that killed Kennedy. Not Kennedy, I mean King. Mm-hmm. And her, the daughter was a white knight, the only operational white knight female I've ever heard of. I mention this because um, this past November, when... Uh, Right after the presidential election, the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan who emerged from hibernation decided on the 40th anniversary, 45th anniversary mm-hmm. of President Kennedy's death and only three weeks after the election of the first African-American president, which I am sure made their squirm, um, they decided to have a tribute An out uh, like a a rally uh, in honor of Kathy Ainsworth. Now she is a something of a martyr to them, but I have never Mm -hmm. seen them do something like that, and I haven't seen the White Knights do anything for months. And I gotta tell you, it it concerned me enough that I called the Secret Service.
0: Whoa!
2: um, To tell them to look out for some of these people, because is this one thing about these folks? All these all these terrorist groups mm-hmm. of all stripes is they love symbolism and they love anniversaries. Mm. And so my, I, I mean, I might be a little bit crazy, but no, you know, no. I don't want to live with, I, you know, on the anniversary of the last presidential killing, they decide to do a, uh, a tribute to somebody who we believe was involved with the King murder. And, only three weeks after the the, mm-hmm. the standard bearer from Dr. King gets uh, elected president, so are they a concern to me? I think that should tell you yes, mm-hmm. they are. And I'm even concerned about the older guys um, who are still alive and may yeah. be involved in the King assassination. Yeah, I had um, they uh, might be sixty, but who knows?
0: Who knows? I had Abraham Bolden on also in november to talk about his story abraham bolden was the first african-american secret service agent folks handpicked by jfk himself and uh, he blew the whistle after the assassination was subsequently framed for a crime he did not commit and thrown in jail and he finally was released after serving his time all that to say is at the time, Obama, he was nominated, but he had not been elected president. And he, even at that time, was talking about the protection around Obama, and he was severely concerned that it was inadequate and it was dangerous. Some of the people around him were dangerous. So there you well, go. I
2: mean, there, I'll tell you the thing that concerned the heck out of me were, you know, in the, the, the Democratic Convention, mm-hmm. there were a couple of nut jobs who, were arrested in, right. in Colorado mm-hmm. but from what I understand they, they're they not going after these guys as potential presidential assassins they just went after them for weapons possession charges. that was it? I think so I oh, have to double check it and I'm sitting there saying to myself yeah. you want to send the wrong message that would be it
0: that's it open season um,
2: so mm. and then there was these two other nut jobs but I mean the thing we have is that they're they're a little bit crazy, but you know, sometimes you get enough crazy people who are determined, and that's part of our stories. These guys were after King for five years.
0: So, how did they react? They even, the Secret Service when you called them? Did they take you seriously, or did they do any I investigation? Don't think they
2: did no, did not. Let's put it this way: I didn't leave the conversation. Now, I called over a holiday. So still. maybe that was the reason, but oh, still. let's just say I didn't leave the phone conversation too confident that what I said registered. Um, I would hope, though, and the reason, the reason I was calling was to make sure that they put these guys back on their radar.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: I would hope that maybe they were already on the radar. So who knows? Who knows? I'm sure they're very, yeah. I, I mean, they've got to know. I mean, they just, Homeland Security just put out a report that warned of the rise of Extremists and actually said that the election of Obama um, has energized them, which I would imagine is true. So that that gives me some confidence.
0: Let's hope. That's okay. You're absolutely right in declaring them as terrorist organizations. They are indeed. I took a terrorist course last year, actually, and they were right in there with the rest of them, with Al Qaeda and uh, Hamas and. Hezbollah, and they're just right. a bunch of thugs that hide behind I mean, they're, they're, religious doctrine. They're right
2: in line. The Christian identity guys are right in line with, with the you know, all the nut jobs who've been doing it. You know, and it's supposedly mm-hmm. in the name of Islam, these guys have you know distorted what Christianity is all about and are doing it in the name of Christianity.
0: Yeah, I was telling Larry last week that it's like the president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, was saying that he wanted to bring about Armageddon with Israel because he wanted the 12th Inman to come around, which is kind of like right. the Christian second coming, if you will. This is insanity. Absolutely yeah, insanity. Well, these yeah,
2: guys, these guys are pretty much the same in the same boat. Um, again, I mean, we're not 100% sure they're involved, but... Let's just say I'm. I'm I, I think it's worthy of a grand jury investigation at the very least, Absolutely. given what we had. Um, and again, there are people who are alive. There are people who've made conversions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's government files that we're we are having, having a tough time getting to, um, and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Some of it just makes no sense. I mean, one of the things I would love to have changed is the not just in King, but overall, under Freedom of Information Act privacy requirements, we've got to show that if somebody is dead, in order to get the information on that person released, but if their name isn't released, how can I show that exactly. they're dead? I don't know who they are. You don't know
0: who they are to begin with, yeah. yeah
2: and that, that, that burden should be on the government. That burden should not be on the private citizen. Agreed. For obvious reasons.
0: Absolutely.
2: Um, but the that would be something that would be I would really hope would come out of this is that 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 would that we, and, and I think that there are going to be there are things in motion right now to get files released on these civil rights cases
0: so. okay we're going to wrap up now Stuart okay. um, any final parting words for us
2: no I just still hope that, that people anybody out there who has uh, information related to any of the things I've said and want to email you as you said I would love to to dig deeper
0: Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Just
2: say thank you. Sorry for the technical,
3: <sighs> technical
0: difficulties. No problem. I just want to thank you again, folks. We've been speaking with none other than Stuart Wexler. Stuart Wexler and Larry Hancock are working on a book that is slated to come out in the fall. This book is called Bringing Armageddon, the Five-Year Effort to Kill Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. If you want more information about this conspiracy and the JFK conspiracy and the Bobby Kennedy conspiracy... Go to www.jfklancer.com or there's another website which I'm going to give you, which is the Mary Farrell website, www.maryfarrell.org. Email me if you want those links, no problem. The email address is nightfrightshow at gmail.com, nightfrightshow at gmail. Dot com. Stuart, thanks again, my friend. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Have a nice night. Bye. You too. Folks, that was Stuart Wexler. Next week, we have Lisa Pease here, and we're going to be continuing our series. It'll be the fourth show in a series of five shows about the Martin Luther King assassination. And Lisa Pease is a researcher. And she's written a book called The Assassination. She co-wrote it with a fellow by the name of James Diogenio. James Diogenio, of course, was a contributor to the DVD version of JFK, the film by Oliver Stone. And we're going to be talking about the different policies and the different social aspects of Dr. King's theories and policies. It's going to be quite fascinating, actually. And, of course, we're going to delve into the assassination, too, and all the anomalies and the arcs between all three assassinations. So that's next week. Coming up in May, we're going to have a show on Tesla, Nikola Tesla. We're going to have another show on a book called The Gauntlet, which is written by a Canadian and it deals with primarily with terrorism and covert ops. That's going to be a really interesting show. We're going to have Deborah Conway from JFK Lancer will be a guest. And Whitley Strieber will be here. Whitley Strieber, of course, horror writer in the United States. He's had many of his books turned into films. His groundbreaking work was called A Communion that was turned into a film. He had another one called Wolfen, and you've probably seen the one that came out a couple of years ago. It was called The Day After Tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. It's the one with Dennis Quaid in it where New York freezes over. They're all Whitley Strieber books. That's going to be a great show. That night also, Cold Spot is coming back. Remember Cold Spot was up here for our Halloween special? The paranormal research team from Collingwood, just outside of Toronto, they're going to be here, and they're driving all the way up to join us for a live show. That's going to be great. So May is jam-packed. Also in June, we've got a whole series special on the Bobby Kennedy assassination. I'm getting ahead of myself now. In July, we've got a UFO special. We've got Michel Deschamps is going to be here co-hosting the shows with me. As you know, he's the MUFON Northern Ontario director. He's going to be co-hosting the shows with me. We've got Stanton Friedman will be here. He's kind of the godfather of UFOs. We're going to be talking about Roswell, alien abductions, a great show out of Winnipeg called Mysterious with Chris Rutowski and Chris Reed. They will be on the telephone live. We'll be talking about various aspects of their show and various aspects about UFO. Chris Rutowski's written several books on UFOs. He's a Canadian authority. And another Canadian authority, we have a whole Canadian lineup for you in July. We're going to have Don Ledger on. We're going to be talking about Canada's... Roswell. I bet you didn't even know we had a Roswell. Well, we do, and it is actually the only UFO sighting that has been documented fully by a Department of Defense, and that Department of Defense is Canada's. So it's right there in a government official UFO sighting. That's coming up in July, and we've just started booking for August. And August 12th, we're going to have another Canadian author on. We're going to be talking about werewolves. I'm really looking forward to that one. That's going to be great, especially with a local author, because I love local authors and promoting local Canadian talent. So that's it for Night Fright. You've been listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland, and you're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM, Laurentian University in beautiful Sudbury, Wednesdays between 3 and 5 in the afternoon, 10 and midnight at night, and you're listening to Caper Radio, Cape Breton University in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Beautiful Sydney Nova Scotia Wednesdays from 3:30 in the afternoon to 5:30 in the evening CILU Lakehead University 102.7 FM Rockin Thunder Bay Sunday night at midnight and CJMQ 88.9 FM the voice of the townships Sherbrooke Quebec Saturday nights from 9 to 11 CJUM 101.5 FM University of Manitoba in Winnipeg Wednesday night Thursday morning 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. Sound FM, 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario, Sunday night, Monday morning, three shows back-to-back, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. I'm Bren Holland for Night Fright. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: to Night Fright, I'm your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. <laughs>